Welcome to Insight Faster, a podcast by MDPI. Open access is only really open if it's open to everyone. So we decided to sit down with some of our researchers to let them explain some of the fantastic work that they do. We'll talk about what it means to them, but also how it's going to affect all of us. Thanks for tuning in. For many of us, sustainability has been the theme of much of our lives, and it will certainly be one of the defining themes of the rest of them. There is nothing more important than the future of our planet. And today on this special episode of Insight Faster, we're lucky enough to be joined by a researcher who is leading the drive towards a sustainable future. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Leila Melon, Executive Director of the Planetary Wellbeing Institutional Framework and joint winner of the Emerging Sustainability Leader Award 2021. Dr. Melon makes business better, championing a corporate sustainability that serves societies rather than shareholders. Interwoven with an education that began in Ljubljana, ended in Aberdeen and stopped off in Barcelona, Luxembourg and Maastricht on the way, Dr. Milan has had a career that has seen her bring together the public and private sectors under an unwavering commitment to sustainability that really works for everyone. She has fostered a crucial link between science and society, underscoring the importance of research and never allowing it to lose sight of its fundamental goals. As an educator, Dr. Milan has placed the concept of sustainability at the center of higher education. Herself an emerging sustainability leader, Dr. Milan has already begun to ensure that the future of sustainability research and innovation is in safe hands. In particular, the SCOM project, part of the EU's 2020 Horizon Scheme, established best practices that will shape businesses' behaviour for years to come. Now, with the Planetary Wellbeing Project at the University Pompeo Fabra in Barcelona, she is reshaping not just how we think about the health of our planet, but the health of everyone and everything on it. Dr. Melon is an expert in rehab on a cosmic scale. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Melon. Thank you very much, Esther, for this interesting introduction. <laughs> I think I'm learning things about myself when I'm hearing those introductions. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here. I saw yesterday you shared on LinkedIn a post about graduating in law from Ljubljana 10 years ago. Uh, when you think back to that time, how has your field changed since you started working and studying? Oh, do you think we're moving in the right direction? Well, the thing is that there was no field 10 years ago. So. <laughs> When we were researching in terms of corporate governance and corporate law, basically, if you mentioned anything related to environmental or social sustainability, you were kind of the unicorn in the field, right? You were seen as, as more or less non-serious and not knowing what you're talking about. And it was very difficult to break that barrier, if I'm completely honest. So um, while I started in corporate governance and corporate law and by studying law, I kind of figured out that I can't understand corporate law very well if I don't understand the underlying economic theories. So I went and started studying economics too, just to understand corporate law. It became clear that it really lacks substance in a way. It lacked the notion of what the corporations are there for at all, like this social permission to operate was not being spoken about. So corporate law was basically focused more or less on structure on corporate transactions, <laughs> on the relationship between the directors, managers, and shareholders, and then, of course, majority and minority shareholders, but the story ended there. 
So basically, it was quite obvious from the onset when you were speaking about negative externalities on one side in economics, and then you saw the corporate governance and corporate law that was handling the issue, and you kind of realized, hey, do we have these problems? So um, starting to speak about sustainability inside the framework of corporate law was really not accepted 10 years ago, not at all. So even when I started my PhD six years ago, the thing was that you could speak about sustainability if speaking about environmental law or if touching upon some basic notion of corporate social responsibility, but inside the corporate governments, it was very much not accepted. Um, and I took on a great challenge by doing my PhD in a common law country, right? Where shareholder primacy was kind of the God, not only the law, but the God. Um, but thank God, um, my supervisor was open-minded enough to allow me to continue on this path despite trying to persuade me otherwise a few times. But since then, in the recent five, four to five years, the story changed completely, right? So now we have a field. So now this is the field you're asking me about sustainability in business law and in corporate law. So thank God those things changed. But starting was very, very difficult to break the scientific boundaries. For, yeah, foremost, first and foremost, the scientific boundaries that were existing because they were strong. Okay. So some progress then, it sounds like. Yes. <laughs> Why is it so important that we understand the interconnectivity between all of these issues of corporate law, sustainability in science, and then sustainability in kind of environmental law. Can we tackle one issue without tackling another? Well, this is the great challenge of our times, right? So we spent the last 70 years of trying to very focus very narrowly science um, and divide the scientific fields very particularly and knowing exactly where the borderline between one and the other field is, we became experts in it, which is great because it brought about a lot of advancement also in academia and research in general, a lot of scholarly progress. But now we're kind of bouncing against those boundaries while trying to solve a problem that cannot be solved in the field of one discipline. So now we need to work across the disciplines. We need to think holistically. We need to think about organic change from inside out. And we're not experts at that. So this is kind of the challenge of today, um, understanding that if you change just one slight small field, you cannot achieve the change on a scale that we need right now. Because what I'm speaking about is basically the notion of climate emergency, resource scarcity, and biodiversity issue, um, which are all interrelated. And at the end of the day, as much as I like to be realistic, right, and look at it um, from the point of from the legal point of view of seeing what is right and what is wrong. I'm also very pragmatic in saying, well, this is now a financial and economic issue because resource scarcity is hitting hard, quite some industries already right now, not tomorrow. So now we're seeing financial consequences and the changes in business frameworks that need to happen due to resource scarcity. Accounting now for how bad the climate emergency right now is and how badly we're doing with biodiversity preservation, more of that is to come, right? So now it's not become a, a thing of whether businesses should do well and do good by it, uh, but it's more about saving the business itself and the production the way it is right now. So the topic changed, right? Um, and as it's changed, maybe it's easier now to understand the interrelation of the issues because if you're saving those, try, trying to save the, or kind of diminish the negative consequences that were created with the in the last 15 years with the production processes that we have, you're basically helping your company now. If you omit those issues and need to try to avoid them, if you go in the sense of compliance, you're basically harming yourself. And at the end of the day, you're harming also the shareholder value that you're so trying to protect, right? Um, and you're making yourself less profitable. 
So the story that we've been telling around the people in sustainability, especially in business law, not just in corporate law, has now become reality for corporations which have now hopped on a train of trying to kind of save themselves. Um, but it needs to happen through an organic change. Uh, it's not just about CSR and adding some nice sustainability and um, uh, environmental sustainability and social sustainability resolutions or solutions, but it's about rethinking the whole production process to be able to sustain on the market for long term. And that's a new challenge now. And is this where this concept of well-being on a planetary scale comes in? Could you tell us a little about that? Yeah. That phrase in particular really interested me, the idea of planetary well-being as it almost relates to us and to business and then to the environment as a whole. Um, I'm not the mother of that idea or that expression, but I'm very proud that we have the father of that expression at the UPF. Um, so Joseph Marianto, he's a professor of medicine, but he's been deeply embedded in the topics of well-being, um, of planetary health and planetary well-being for quite some time now. Um, his idea was basically going out of the concept that was has been created in Lancet of planetary health, right? How to make humans, but the planet itself healthy. Well-being is slightly different from that pure notion of health because it simply speaks about the fact that we are looking at the notions of environmental and social sustainability a bit wrongly sometimes. Because what we can hear in media in general or in academia in particular is this notion of we need to save the planet. Well, we're wrong. The planet is going to save itself. <laughs> what we're saving right now is humanity. The planet is fine. If the planet needs to get rid of us, it will. The problem is about the quality of life of the humanity. And here is where the notion of well-being comes in, saying by protecting nature and by protecting the society with a better quality of living, we are protecting the well-being of everyone involved, of the planet, of the nature, of the society as a whole, of every human being. And that goes to health, that goes to education, that goes to working conditions, you name it, etc. That goes to the quality of, of living in general. And that's where the planetary well-being notion comes from, understanding that it's humanity that is in trouble and what we can do to kind of assure that we're going to have a high standard of living, humanity as a whole, not just the developed countries, but developing too, to try to make the transition smooth, but also being aware that there's no such thing as continuing the life as we have right now and achieving that change. In that framework now, the UPF is trying to kind of transform its traditional curricula the way it stands under the given limits, to give this notion to every single student that comes and studies at the UPF or the adjacent centers. Because we are aware that, first of all, it's not just what the labor market requires, it's what will be required as a basic skill in the upcoming decades. And that is the transformation we're trying to undergo. But with the notion of planetary well-being, trying to put this awareness that it's not the planet that's in trouble, we are if we don't stop changing the planet the way we are. And if you don't mind me asking, how's it going? Have you been able to make much progress? The thing is that starting was a bit um, challenging, just from the point of view that there are many barriers, institutional also, uh, we're trying to instigate that change. Um, barriers come also from the framework that basically enabled us to, to study all across the Europe. So the credit system that we have established right now can be at times pretty rigid. Uh, not rigid in terms of adding new programs or adding new courses, that is pretty okay. Rigid in terms of changing the existing established courses already, which is a big challenge because that's exactly what we're trying to do. Um, just to give a plastic example, if you're trying to speak about the existing theories and well-established theories of microeconomics, of consumption and production, right? At most, environment comes in as an additional constraint, right? Something on the side that maybe you should take a look at. 
It is not basically the underlying assumption of the model. Now, if you're trying to present it as an underlying assumption of the model, you need to change the whole course. In order to change the whole course, there are a lot of administrative hurdles that you need to come through uh, with accreditation, et cetera, the agencies that are on the national level, and then the system at the European level, that is a challenge. In that terms, policy coherence for sustainability in higher education is still lacking. And that is something that I wish to work on in the years to come, because it makes no sense. If we have policies like European Green Deal, which has been dealing with so many fields at the same time, and it's a great, great mind map for the changes that we're supposed to do, you cannot leave education outside and you cannot leave the system as rigid as it is. Of course, we need quality assurance, that is completely clear. Um, but the quality assurance needs to follow the policies as established at the EU level, specifically now with Fit for 55, that's more ambitious, it makes no sense not to allow for the revision of the established theories, specifically in the sense of faculties of economics and economic theories and faculties of law. And that's where kind of the rigidity is kind of the highest if you take a look at it, and of course in medicine too. Uh, but in terms of changing the systems and preparing um, the students for real life and for the very required sustainability profile right now, uh, which is a big boom at the labor market, we need to achieve a little bit more flexibility in terms of changing the traditional curricula. So um, I'm pretty optimistic that, that the commission already knows that. Um, let's just see how fast the changes can be implemented. That's actually something that I hadn't really considered before, that I thought about sustainability as a drive towards new solutions and new innovations. But actually, it's as much about reforming and rethinking some of the frameworks and systems that we've already got. Exactly. And the science progress beautifully in that. So that is the most beautiful thing. It's not like we're lacking new theories or new established theories. It's not like we're lacking empirical evidence uh, to the contrary about some theories. It's just the implementation kind of is very, very slow. Too slow actually to support this change that is also happening in labor markets. So here I would really welcome some more open and flexible solutions. And so if you could condense that down into one outcome that you'd like to see from yourself and your colleagues work at the Planetary Wellbeing Initiative, what would you like it to be? <laughs> it's exactly this, the revision of traditional theories, because it's very difficult to come in a classroom and speak about consumption and production and the lowest cost by being a sustainability expert. So teaching microeconomics for somebody who is expert in sustainability is painful right now, because it is so rigid in terms of the plans there are and syllabi that there are. So that is something that I would really like to achieve. We have ambitious projects um, still waiting for us. We created a great project with the Utopian Network, uh, where there are six more universities, well now seven, aside from the UPF, uh, and we're going to try to achieve that. It's just really, honestly, I would like to see that transformation in due time, not that we're lagging behind. So I would like to the academia to take lead again in the societal transformation instead of kind of following what's happening in the society. I believe that that is something that I would like to achieve. And if we, if we talk about academia and its own contribution to sustainability and the field of sustainability and our global drive towards sustainability, how important do you think the concept of open access is in that context? It's extremely important. You can actually see it in my own work. Um, so you have papers that are published um, closed access and you have papers that are published open access and so many more works come from the open access papers, of course, because you don't need to access them to, to your institution. Reading about others' work, getting new ideas, combining them with your ideas, that's basically the basic thing that we need for transformation to happen. Um, and I'm very, very happy that open access publications have become more norm than an exception right now. Um, what we need is cooperation. And by closing down the knowledge that we have, it's kind of <laughs> the biggest 
impediment for that cooperation. We need cooperation, not just inside the disciplines, but across the disciplines and open access is the one that is kind of incentivizing that look over the border, cross the border, away from your field to kind of broaden the scope of the, of the way you're thinking. So you're not entrenched inside, I don't know, legal thinking or inside of economic thinking, but that you can go a bit beyond. So you can go and see what anthropologists are saying, what sociologists are saying, what is the empirical evidence in econometrics regarding the statements you're making. And open access facilitates that to a large extent. So I'm very, very happy about that development. It sounds like it feeds back into the bit of the in interconnectivity that we were talking about earlier that applies not just across fields like academia, into business, into science, but then back into within fields in terms of the individual denominations within each one. Exactly. exactly. And so if you could give a few words of advice to young researchers looking to forge a career in sustainability, economics, law, academia in general, what would you say? What would you say to the uh, young Dr. Melon graduating from Ljubljana? You need stamina and you need passion. If you're not passionate about what you're doing, you're not going to get far. Uh, the road is hard in academia specifically right now. We know what's happening with public funding. Uh, we also know what's happening now with the sustainability transition. The changes are so fast um, and the requirements for academics, but also professionals in the field are so large that everybody's overworked <laughs> severely. So if you're trying to deal with sustainability, you, it has to come from your heart. Um, it has to be something that you're passionate about in your everyday uh, to have the stamina to continue. And please keep reaching out. So if academia is something that you're trying to do and effectuate real change in terms of sustainability, don't work alone, it's impossible. Uh, reach out, talk to peers, uh, talk to experts in the field. They're very open. Uh, people that are working in the field of sustainability in law and economics, those are very open people, very open to cooperation also with students. So just reach out, speak and, and work in an interdisciplinary manner. And that's something that I, I, the basic advice that I would give actually. Sure, that's fantastic advice. That's actually something that I wish I knew when I was studying. <laughs> We've spoken about what's wrong. Let's talk about what people are doing right. If you could look at global business, global academia, and the people that are doing things right, who would you point to? Who do you admire? Coming from a field that's highly critical, that's not an easy answer uh, to give. Um, but something that I felt for a long time and that I'm very proud of is I'm super proud of young entrepreneurs and startups. Um, companies that start with the main corporate purpose being to regenerate the society and the environment. So it's not just about being sustainable and causing the least harm, but the companies that are out there right now, they start with the business idea of regeneration, of circularity, pushing through all the, the barriers that they have because the administrative barriers and the financial barriers for startup are crazy right now. We have some funds that are coming from the public sector. We have some funds that are coming from the private sector, but they don't carry you through the first or end the second year sometimes of really grasping for a market share and trying to understand how to effectuate your business model specifically in times when we're still very linearly focused, right? So majority of businesses, unfortunately, are still working in the linear manner. Um, so embedding circularity in, some, in this policy framework is sometimes very unkind to circular practices and holding on and in innovating, that is something that I would welcome. Um, specifically here, if I, if I turn locally, because that's one of the topics basically that sustainability comes up, brings about, right? You start focusing a bit more locally and then you go on a global scale. And the area 22 in Pobleno here in Barcelona is extremely good in innovating and sustainability with young entrepreneurs. 
um, basically coming from university trying to find solutions. So that is something that I found as an extremely positive development because they fastly also find big companies to join with um, and start having a real life on their own. So that is something that I would welcome. I would also welcome the efforts of large, some large companies um, in Europe in under the framework of the non-financial reporting directive, well, what it's gonna become now, corporate sustainability um, reporting directive, they're at least starting to understand the impact. So that was something that we were very worried about in the last 10 years that many companies did not even push an effort of understanding where the impact lies. The non-financial reporting directive brought about that. So despite the fact that don't, they don't always report on everything that should be reported, they started realizing where their sustainability hotspots are. And that is something that I would welcome. But outside of business, there are three names that I really, really wanted to mention that are a great inspiration and might be also to our listeners. One is Jason Hickel, he's an anthropologist. He is starting to, to speak about, he started to speak about sustainability from the side of trying to understand the underlying economic systems. And he has great words, very simple words to put the incoherence of our system in place. <laughs> um, he's very active on Twitter, so our listeners can, can follow him there. Everybody knows David Attenborough, right? Um, who has not started as a climate activist, um, but life kind of made him one. His documentaries are basically showing in a very easy way of what is real and what is not. So when you have climate skeptics, you just need to watch a movie that has footage from 50 years ago and today on the same area, and you see that we have an issue. And last but not least, definitely not least, Beate Siafer, who is an academic in the field, um, who has been fighting for corporate sustainability for the last 20 years and who has brilliant articles and arguments as to how to progress and why to progress in, those, in the sense of sustainability. So that is something that I would kind of um, like to point out for our listeners. Well, thank you for a critical field. That's plenty for us to get excited about. So what about you? What's next for your own career? Where should we be looking out for you popping up in the next few years? God only knows. Um, if you asked me that question before pandemics, maybe I would be even able to answer. Uh, then pandemics happened and we kind of realized, all of us, um, that we don't know about tomorrow. Um, but what I would like to continue working on is having impact. So that is something that I, despite the fact that I'm in academia and many times it's, it's looked at critically in terms of what impact does it have, I've been trying to create impact on everything I touched since I started working in academia. That's basically also what the, the Emerging Sustainability Leader Award was about because every single time when you touch upon a, even if it's just a regular task of academia, you can have an impact. Now I think that inside the academia, more or less, I achieved everything that I wanted in terms of creating new programs, spurring new connections, creating an annual forum um, where high level experts in the field of sustainability can meet yearly. Mm, that's the Incorporated Sustainability Conference. All of those goals are kind of achieved. Um, now I think, um, I have a calling of going more in practice. Um, start implementing the knowledge that I have right now, start helping companies to transform, start helping people to understand how they can lead the transformation. So it's not just about consulting, it's about making, no, empowering people actually to understand that they can effectuate the change and that you don't need an army of people to start. You need one in organization that is very passionate and then it spills over. Um, so I would say that I would start um, flirting a little bit with the private sector because I kind of want at the end of the day to also see a, a practical impact of the findings um, and see how they can actually help through this fight uh, against climate change. So let's see if that's the next step. But that basically is the wish. I'm sure you'll be able to push that through and I'm sure you'll be a fantastic help to uh, a great deal of corporations looking to make business better. Thank you, Jasper. 
as we finish up, let's zoom out slightly. When you look at the world as it is today, what gives you hope and what scares you? <laughs> what gives me hope is the new generations. Um, and I don't just mean the new generations in terms of students as who just enter university, but kids in general. Um, they seem to have a higher level of awareness than, than our generation did. Um, they see the world a bit differently. I, I have a feeling while, while looking at the peers of my daughter that they have this ability, beautiful ability of being more in the now. And since they're surrounding with so many goods since their, their childhood, they're not interested in material anymore, which gives hope for the overconsumption and overproduction to end. They're also more and more open to sharing um, and exchanging things because they have this abundance, specifically in the developed world, I'm saying. Um, that gives me hope. Young activists give me hope um, because they're allowed um, and they're not scared. What gives me hope is also this honest wish of quite some academic institutions to join the fight. It's not just about changing and rewashing and, and washing your name. It's really about changing the way we're functioning and understanding that we have challenges that the academia didn't resolve up until now. Mm, that gives me hope. Uh, what saddens me is the game, the, the games that the big um, corporations are playing specifically in the most um, unsustainable sectors, such as oil and gas. What scares me also is the outcome at the COP25 in Madrid. And I am sincerely hoping that Glasgow is going to bring about some changes. What scares me also is the reactivity of policies sometimes that we're passing. Um, I'm very proud of the European Commission with the policy instruments and the legislation they're preparing right now because it's more, way more forward-looking than before. But what I was facing uh, the last 10 years, specifically in the field of corporate law and sometimes in the field of business law in general, was reactive policies. And for that, we don't have time right now. So yeah, that would kind of be a summary of what scares me and what excites me, <laughs> where I see the future. I'm a glass half full kind of guy. So I'm going to say that there is a lot more on the positive side than the negative side there. You've had an incredible career hopping throughout Europe and beyond. If you looked at Ljubljana, Barcelona, Luxembourg, Maastricht and Aberdeen, which one was your favorite and why? That doesn't have to be the university, that can be the nightlife, the food, anything. This is a very difficult question for me because I love them all. <laughs> I love them all for, for their specific reasons. Um, but I would say in general, the, the preferred, of course, is Barcelona. Why it's the preferred one? Because the community here is incredible. Um, so I'm a foreigner. I still don't speak Catalan, which is horrible. I understand it. Um, but I see my daughter as Catalan. She was born here. She was raised here. She's in a public uh, school system. Um, she speaks Catalan fluently, basically. She's, she's, she's Catalan. Um, the values that they insert in kids and that they grow amongst themselves are very inclusive, which results also in their administration at the city level or, or in general at the autonomous community level being very inclusive. So they had sustainable public procurement for the last 15 years, which is incredible. We just started speaking about sustainable public procurement, for instance, at the EU level, let's say seven years ago. That is something that they've been implementing here since forever. Um, there is a lot of solidarity, um, a lot of open-mindedness. Basically, everything that circular economy and sustainability stands for in terms of values and shared values, um, that is something that can be found in Barcelona. So I guess that's why I also made my home here. Um, as, as regards the rest, Ljubljana is my preferred because it has all my friends. Um, Aberdeen has great people, um, and the University of Aberdeen is excellent and an excellent institution. Luxembourg um, cannot be beaten as regards to um, 
experience, working experience in EU institutions when I was working at the general court of the EU. There are some fantastic people with enormous amount of knowledge there. So I've Maastricht, for instance, has close by my family, but also the institution, the University of Maastricht, is so open outwards that I have a lot to thank them for, for jumping on the train of EU law so much and for starting to work at the EU Court of Justice. So each of them has something, but Barcelona has the values that I agree with. So I guess that's plastic. Wow. So interconnectivity, even in Barcelona. So at the end of our podcast, we like to ask our guests to point out a few things for our listeners to look out for in their field in the next few years. These could be future publications, conferences, films, books, anything. So what's next for the Planetary Wellbeing Initiative? I don't even know where to start. There's so much happening right now, which is great. Um, But frankly, the first thing that I want to, to kind of attention to for our listeners is the Incorporate Sustainability Conference. The videos are really available on YouTube every single year. This has been the second edition. We had an opening, the opening remarks from the Commissioner for Justice of the EU. We have exceptional keynote speakers that are on the top of their field. And these two years we have been dealing with sustainable public procurement, sustainability in higher education, sustainable corporate governance, and we haven't stopped there. We started also with sustainability in the competition law, understanding where we're at, talking about consumer welfare and, and sustainability. Those two are almost not related. So we have a lot of people working on relating those two. And of course, on the notion of sustainable finance, but not just taxonomy, understanding how you can finance your transition. So that is all all freely available on YouTube right now on the channel of the UPF. And we're continuing next year where we're going to be implementing also AI solutions and understanding how the newly developed fields also need to be sustainable and what we're going to be doing with it. Second thing, the programs that we're trying to create right now to effectuate the change, to make an impact. So we're, we're shying away from creating programs that are theoretical. Theory is online, we can do that. What we're trying to mount right now, specifically at the SCOPF, is a postgraduate program that teaches you how to understand the changes that are happening and gives you tools to measure your CO2 footprint, to measure your water footprint, to practically put in place solutions for your organization, private or public, and help you to get on with the work, not just understanding the challenges, we do. (laughs) Knowing how to resolve them and knowing how to find the answers. So that is the second thing. And the third thing is the books that are coming up with Rootledge for trying to find new solutions. One is an edited volume that is a direct outcome, basically of the first volume of the Incorporate Sustainability Conference with some great contributions. Um, And the second one is basically gonna be kind of um, building on the outcomes of the Exxon project that I had. Mm, to try to understand the interrelation between sustainable public procurement, sustainable corporate governance, and education, trying to understand what are organic changes, um, and inviting, of course, people to work further on that, um, to try to implement the solutions that were suggested. That is, I think, the most important. And uh, regarding the planetary well-being, that is something that is on the way that I'm just collaborating on, but we're building basically the main center for sustainability right now uh, that is going to be jointly owned by the UPF, the municipality, Generalitat de Catalunya, um, that is going to be the meeting point, the sustainability center of the Southern Europe, um, and is supposed to be functioning already in 2023, 2024. So that is something that the researchers should take note, because we're going to be inviting many, many foreign researchers to help us with the work in there. I think that's enough. No? <laughs> well, it's certainly enough. And I'll tell you what, it's certainly enough for a few more podcast episodes at some point. We'll provide links to everything about the Emerging Sustainability Leader Award, as well as everything else that we've talked about today in the podcast description. Thank you. 
And we're also going to be talking to more of the winners of the Emerging Sustainability Leader Award and World Sustainability Leader Award. So look out for those interviews when they come around. Thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Milon. Thank you. And congratulations on winning the Emerging Sustainability Leader Award 2021. Thank you very much. It's been fantastic to chat to you about everything from your own research in the field of sustainability to the work that you're doing now at the Planetary Wellbeing Project. I've come away with a brighter outlook on the future, knowing some of the work that's going on to protect it. But I'd also like to thank you for tuning in. If you're interested in publishing with MDPI, you can find information on just how to do that at mdpi.com, along with links to our social media where you can see everything that will be going on at NDPI. If you're interested in suggesting topics for Insight Faster, you can email me at jasper.clo at mdpi.com. But for now, I'd just like to thank everyone for tuning in. Of course, Dr. Milon for chatting to me and to say that I'm Jasper Clo and this has been Insight Faster. Thank you very much. <laughs>